If you have your scriptures with you, would you turn to Luke chapter 11, please? And we will continue with our Reading the Red series. Beginning with verse 14. It says, And he was casting out a demon. And it was dumb, and it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Now, there are two things in this, this paragraph I want you to get. Both are about demons. Now, some of you are, you know, here and there about demons, I know. But, but I believe demons exist. And I believe that you recognize the nature of a demon by the effect that the demon has. And that's how you spot what that demon is. Now, not every problem in the world is caused by demons. Obviously, most of them are not. And there's a difference between demon inhabitation and demon possession. And one of these days I'll teach on that. Not today, but one of these days. But there are instances in which there is a presence of a demon. And the way to get it out is to come into it in the name and the power of Jesus Christ and say, leave. When we first got here, we moved into a house. We didn't know who had lived in that house, but there was something. (laughs) Josh is going to go, what? We never talked to Josh about it. But there was something in one room of that house that was alien. I mean, just downright alien. We'd walk into that room and there'd be strange smells, you know, strange shades, strange sounds, you know, just periodically. And I was laying in the room one night and I just felt the presence of something alien. And I said, Jesus Christ is the head of this household. And it's by his power and through his spirit that I command you to leave. And you know what happened? Nothing. Ever again. It was out. It was gone. Now, that is not a very usual case. You know, that's not most of our problems. I worked, when I was working on my doctoral work in pastoral counseling, I spent a year as a chaplain of a mental hospital in Indianapolis, Central State Hospital for the Mentally Insane. And I prayed a lot of prayers. And many of them had to do with demon possessions. And in only two of those cases was there a marked difference in the people. What did that say? It said only two of them had problems with the spiritual inhabitation. The rest of them had psychological, emotional, social problems. And so Jesus is simply saying here, cast it out. If it works, if it's cleared up, it was a demonic problem. If it doesn't, it's something else. You know, if there's a room in your house that's weird and you cast something out and it doesn't work, call the carpenters in, (laughs) you know, call the wiring people in, whatever, you know, get the exterminators in. It's probably something else. But there are such things, and I don't want to belittle that fact or treat them as uh, uh, non-beings. Jesus believed in them, and it was not just an acquiescence to the culture. He spoke to them, and there was a result, and he knows more about the spiritual world than we do. Now, here's the response of the crowd. But some of them says he casts out demon by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is translated from a word that means the Lord of the flies. And by this time, (laughs) it meant the Lord of the dunghill. And uh, that's what it meant. And I could translate that in another language, but I won't. 
When Harry Truman, you know how salty Harry Truman's language was. He delivered a speech one time in Iowa, and uh, he kept using the word manure. And his, and his wife, Bess, you know, somebody came up to her and said, can't you get him to quit saying manure? And Bess looked at her and said, are you kidding? Do you, do you know how long it took me to get him to say manure? <laughs> so anyhow, uh, Lord of the Dunghill, ruler of demons, and others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now, the, literally, the Greek, if you have your interlinear text with you, any of you have that, the Greek means tempting a sign from heaven they called upon him. Now, I'm going to be preaching on this second group next week. Those people who live in their Christianity wanting some certain easy religion from heaven and using Jesus as a ticket for their easy religion. I'll, I'll address this next week. But his reply immediately following is for that first group. The group that assigns to him evil. And he looks at them and says in no uncertain terms from all of their differing opinion why they're wrong. Now this is going to take a minute, so I hope that you just relax. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. And we haven't got any Christianettes in this. This is going to take a while. I want to develop this with you. So relax and we'll see where the Lord leads this. There are four kinds of people in the crowd that he's talking to. You all know that we're wired differently, don't you? And each of us have different hotspots, different things where, where reason or persuasion connects with us. There are basically four types of people in that crowd. And he gives an argument, standing flat-footed in front of them, and tells them why they're wrong. And he gives them the four different kinds of people. You can discern it because of the arguments he presents. The first argument is the reductio ad absurdum. It is reducing to the absurd what they've just said so that it doesn't make any sense. And this kind of argument really speaks to a person that is an analytically oriented, someone with a categorical mind and cannot stand inconsistencies. There are people, in order to convince them, you have to show them consistently, analytically, why what you're saying is true. And one of the best ways to show them why what you're saying is true is by showing them what they're saying is inconsistent. One of the best examples of this is the teleological argument for the existence of God. Basically, those people who say that we got here by chance. If you really outline that, if you really say that we got here by successive mutations alone, no matter how many years it took, then you will reduce it to the absurd. The old argument is you walk in a desert and there's a watch laying there, just out in the middle of the desert, nobody around. And you think to yourself, how did that watch get here? You have basically two choices. You can say to yourself, as someone who would believe only in evolution would have to say to themselves, well, Gee, out of hundreds of thousands and millions of years, there, the sand came together with just the right heat and just the right coincidence, and it formed itself into a little silver wafer. And then millions and millions of more years passed, and hundreds of thousands of years, and the sand, the wind whipped it up, and it got so hot, and the seawater came in, and, and, and things exploded from the ground, and formed out of that sand little gears that just kind of tumbled and found their way in 
this little silver wafer and one of them was a stem and it planted itself right in the middle and these little gears of course didn't but under out of thousands of years they kind of meshed themselves together like this see and then and then under millions and millions of years just by chance as would inevitably happen there was a metal piece that was long and skinny that tumbled and got all rolled up and all wound up and landed in the wafer in the wafer right by those little gears and then of course, as would happen by chance, I mean, any, you give it long enough and you have another metal wafer that forms itself in its turn and flops in the wind over and lands on that stem. And then, of course, what you have, if, if you have enough millions of years, you have uh, white paint that forms and just comes and rains on the, the thing. And then, uh, because nature is so symmetrical, you have black paint that forms. Only it, it rain, when it rains, it rains in the numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. See, in equilateral distance, of course, it just happens, you know, by chance it would just happen over you given enough time. And then, of course, you have a piece of clear plastic or glass that forms out of that sand. Of course, everybody knows, see, glass is made out of sand, right? And so eventually, you're going to have a wafer exactly that size that's made and blows and lands on that watch and seals itself. And then given the right circumstances, it somehow gets wound up and you got to watch. That's how that watch got there. See? Now, isn't that logical? Yeah. Well, I got some land I want to talk to you about in South Florida. <laughs> how much more complicated, how much more coordinated, how much more symmetrical is just the human eye than a watch? And you're asking us to believe that we got here by chance? See? You give that to someone who is touched by the argument of analysis, and they'll have to say, now that's pretty absurd. You got to watch, there's got to be a watchmaker somewhere. You got a person, there's got to be a person maker somewhere. It just doesn't make sense. And so Jesus faced this crowd and he said, now let me get this straight. Um, you're calling me on Satan's side. I'm casting out Satan. So you're saying that Satan has a big strategy to take over the world by coming in and casting himself out so that he has no power. And that's Satan's strategy. Is that correct? And they're all standing there going, ah. Okay, he's taking care of the people who reason. Now he turns to the people who are influenced by important relationships. Many people in this world, books on sociology will tell you this, are most convinced, not because it reasons well, but because the people they respect believe in it. And so Jesus turns to them and he says in verse 19, and if I, by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. In other words, if I'm doing this and I'm crazy and I'm on his side, your sons are on his side. Now, see, for people who really connect with relationships, they can't tolerate that. 
I was in a college dorm one time, and someone uh, in that college dorm had given his life to Christ, and the word had just gotten out. He had just made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And somebody came in there, this guy who lived like a reprobate, came from a good Christian family, but he just decided he'd rebel, thank you very much, while he was in college, and so he was living a lousy life. Now, he knew he was living a lousy life. Everybody knew he was living a lousy life. And he was offended by this guy who had just committed his life to Christ. So he came, and in the middle of the lobby in James Hall, Ohio University, he said, I heard you became a Christian. The guy said, that's right, I did. He said, are you nuts? Are you so stupid and so naive as to believe in that crap? I can't believe that you would be that dumb. Now, the person he was talking to happened to know his family. He happened to know his mother, who was a godly woman, a saint, who probably spent a good portion of her life on her knees praying for the son. Hadn't taken effect yet, but it would someday. And the guy just looked at him calmly and said, So that means if I'm nuts, if I'm crazy, if I'm stupid, if I'm naive, your mother is nuts and stupid and crazy and naive. You should have seen this guy's eyes. His eyeballs rolled around in his head, you know, because nobody calls your mother stuff. And his first thought was, this guy just called my mother crazy and nuts and naive. And he started to go for him, and then he thought, now, wait a minute. I'm the one that called her nuts and crazy. And, and he was all mixed up. And while he was mixed up and his eyes were rolling around in his head, this guy continued and said, and you're telling me that you would rather have your character than your mother's character. You would ha rather have your integrity than your mother's integrity. You would rather have your example of a life than your mother's example of a life. Is that what you're telling me? Well, his eyes started rolling around in his head again. And then he delivered the piece de resistance. He looked at the guy and he said, I'm with your mother on this thing. I don't know where you are. And the guy got so frustrated, he said, shut up, and walked out. He couldn't cope with it. See, if you connect with an important relationship, a belief with important relationship. If you say, look at this life. You had a grandmother that was a saintly and godly woman. Do you think your life is so much more valuable and useful than hers? There's nothing you can do to argue against that. Look at this pastor who was so much of a support and encouragement to you. And you think Christianity's crazy? So, he talked to people who would be connected with people who were actually doing the work of God. And they couldn't deny those connections. They were convinced because they had the connectedness, the relationships that would convince them so. Then he turned to the people who were from Missouri. Just say, you show me. You show me. And this is what he said. Very simply, he said... If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It was just that simple. Why do you doubt me? You saw it, didn't you? The guy couldn't speak, and now he speaks. What's the deal? What do you doubt? And they couldn't say a thing. I went to a very liberal seminary. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody. But there were some believers there. And one of the believers... One of the believers, I'll tell you that story sometime. 
One of the believers was a guy by the name of John Kowalczyk. Round little guy, neat guy, loved this guy. He wasn't real sharp, you know, but he was, he loved God. And he loved his family. And he loved his friends. And he loved to help people. He loved his churches. He had these two little country churches, you know. And he'd go serve them on the weekend. And then he'd come back to seminary and he'd tell us stories about his people, you know. Loved those people. They were hilarious stories, by the way. Little country churches. Loved them. Well, in the off hours between classes, we'd go down and we'd gather around a table in the, in the, in the uh, seminary cafeteria. And we'd just talk, you know. And John was there one day telling us about his stories. We loved to hear John. You couldn't be around John and not be closer to God. You just couldn't. It was impossible. Well, this guy came up named Dan, who was absolutely brilliant. I mean, this guy was sharp. He, I don't think he was a believer. I can't say for sure, but I don't think he was a believer. I think, honestly, he was in seminary to avoid the war. And he came up, and but Dan, something about Dan, he was just brilliant theologically, but he was an angry, angry person. So he came up and sat down, and I thought, oh, golly, you know, what's going to happen here? Sure enough, John made some simple, loving statement about the Father. You know, you know who God reminds me of. God reminds me, da da da, da you know. And this guy stood up, this Dan stood up and just was furious. He said, I'm so tired of you imbecilic idiots pretending like you're some sort of spiritual leader. John, you get D's in theology. You don't know anything about theology. And then he started, he said, I'll tell you what's wrong with what you just said. And then he started quoting theologians, you know, that would just go down the line. And he looked around at the rest of the table and he says, why in the world, how in the world can you think this guy's some sort of spiritual leader? He's an idiot. Well, John just sat there. And I knew John well enough to know John was sitting there praying for this guy. That was his character. He wasn't offended. He wasn't threatened. He was just sitting there praying for him. And somebody finally spoke up. Regrettably, it wasn't me. But somebody finally spoke up and said, Dan, in a very calm voice, when we can see in your life the love and the integrity and the peace and the helpfulness that we see in John's, we will listen to you. And do you know what Dan said to that? Nothing. He just walked off, defeated. He was so brilliant and so empty, and he knew it. The evidence was in John's life. And anybody who knew how Christianity worked and that Christianity worked could look to John and see evidence of it. And that's what convinced people. Every once in a while, we'll be lifting weights over at, the, over at Bally, and somebody will come in. You know, why are, why, there is always somebody to tell you how to do something, in there? I mean, just wants to come in and start telling you how to do stuff. If you walk down a mall with a little kid, people will flock to tell you how to raise that kid, won't they? Why is that? Anyhow, every once in a while, there'll be somebody who will come in and have the melon slice look. I say melon slice because they usually have such a pot belly that their shorts are down to here and their t-shirts up to here and their, their stomach's like a slice of melon out there. <laughs> you know? 
and they have, you know, all the gear and all the equipment, you know, they got like a hundred dollar Adidas sweatsuit on, they'll come down and they got the headband on and I say, let me tell you how, you know, what, let me tell you what would do more good. If you lift weights like this, and you know the look that they get, everybody looks at them and they look at the melon and they look back at, and they say, thanks. And they just keep on doing what they're doing. Why? There's no evidence that it works. No evidence. There are a couple of guys there, though, that have bodies that will not quit. I mean bodies. If they say, let me tell you something about lifting weights, it's like E.F. Hutton. <laughs> Why? Because it worked. It worked. Listen, the evidence for Christianity is overwhelming overwhelming. Is there anybody in here that thinks if they go the way of the world that they will ultimately be satisfied and fulfilled and happy with their life? If you take all the world's hint, how many, how many commercials can you hear on sex? How many, how many commercials can you hear on competitiveness? And follow that on down the line, do you really believe that is going to do you or the rest of the world any good. But the evidence for Christianity is overwhelming. Do you know that in 18 years of ministry, I have never seen a couple get a divorce, both of whom were following Christ at that point? Never. For that to take place, one of them has to drop out and say, I know God doesn't like this, but this is what I'm going to do. I've got to find my own way. I've got to find my own path. I've got to find, fulfill myself and all that kind of stuff. But you would think if Christianity didn't work, wouldn't you? That in 18 years and thousands of couples, that I would find one couple, both of whom were following Christ, that had messed up their lives, never seen it. Have seen people drop out. In 18 years of ministry, I have never seen a young person who is in the act of following Christ mess up their lives. Never. I've seen plenty that started out and plenty that dropped out for a little while because they had certain appetites that they want to fulfill and get in a terrible mess. I've seen plenty of that. But I have never seen anyone in the act of following Christ get messed up. Now let me ask you this. Do you feel relaxed about just turning your kids over to the ways of the world and say, I think you can find your way out there. I think you'll get good enough guidance out there. Go with, go with what the world's telling you. Phew. Scary, isn't it? You know that they're going to get messed up eventually because it's just a matter of time. Look at the way the world has been built. Look at the things that last and are good. Have you ever, I know you've seen, you've been in towns, you lived in towns where they had Methodist Hospital, Baptist Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, Catholic Hospitals, St. Francis Hospitals, Jewish Hospitals. Have you ever lived in a town where they had an atheist hospital? Where's it ever been? Jack and Pamela say, we're going out and we're going to send dried fruit to refugee camps. Have you ever seen atheists walk for the hungry? What works? What really improves the world? Look at the evidence. 
And you'll come up with following God. It's just that simple. And that's what Jesus did. He's well, isn't he? Isn't he well? Then don't doubt what I said. And then he has the fourth category of person. He looks at them and he says, let me tell you a story. This is my category, by the way. <clears throat> Can you tell? I love stories. Anybody out there like stories? Yeah, I do. Okay. He looks and he says, now when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own household, his possessions are undisturbed. Now who's he talking about there? He's talking about Satan, isn't he? Satan is the strong man who is guarding the household, his household, the people he possesses. He just, he just cast him out of one person. So he's just telling him a story. Now let me just, before I go on, let me say to you, Satan is a strong man in this world. You try to resist temptation on your own and see how long you can go. You try to behave good for a long period of time on your own and see how long you can go. Some of you may be able to go for days, some of you may be able to go for weeks, but eventually you're out of there. Why? Because Satan is strong in this world. I know Christians have said, and I've been one of them, that in comparison to God's power, Satan is nothing. That's exactly right. But it's in, in, in comparison to our power, there's something there. He is strong. There's a war going on. There's a war going on for your thought life. There's a war going on for your kids. There's a war going on for your relationships. And he is strong. Martin Luther wrote in The Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that word, those words he wrote, he wrote in German. And Vertlin will in fallen. And what it means is one little word shall fell him. And that's true. The word Jesus can take his power away. The allegiance to Jesus can take his power away. But all of the armies of people who devise their own ways, the world will not come out right until they take their resource in God. Satan is strong. So, Jesus says there's a strong man who's guarding his house and guarding his possessions. Then he says, but when someone stronger, that's Jesus, then he attacks him and overpowers him. He takes away from his, him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. He has told him a story. And people identified with that story. Fred Craddock was, is a professor at Phillips University. And he did a, a fellowship at Yale in which he um, <clears throat> estimated the power of overhearing a story. You know, as many people are, we don't have children's sermons here, maybe we will someday, but as many people are converted out of children's sermons, you know, out of, as out of adults, because when you're an adult, you go, gosh, he's talking to me, and your defenses go up. But when you can tell a story, your defenses are all down, you're just kind of peeking in and go, yeah, that's what I want too for my life. So Jesus told stories all the time. When I was, uh, when I was young and I got a bad report card, I remember one time I would go home, and of course my mother would give me lectures just like we give lectures. When you grow up, you won't be able to support your family, you bum. You, you, and we'd, we'd go there. I mean, the whole night, I'd go, yes, mom, yes, mom, yes, mom, yes, mom. And don't you know that, you know, you've got a bad reputation. You'll get this, you'll get that. And, uh, and you know, uh, and it just all, <sighs> mothers are supposed to say that, aren't they? I mean, what's a mother for? To ream you out. 
That's what a mother's for. So we got reamed up. Anyhow, I took it to my grandfather, Pop. Pop was a neat guy. He had this old, he always had a half-chewed cigar in his mouth. Never lit, just ate cigars constantly. <laughs> Not a real clean breath person, but nice guy. And I remember showing it to him. <clears throat> Pop didn't say a word about the bad grades. He said, you know, when I was little, he had me right there. There was a kid in our school named Roger. And Roger was smart, but he didn't get very good grades. And eventually, kids started making fun of him. And eventually, kids did not respect him, and eventually he had no friends. And I thought, I'm Roger! I'm him! Oh, no, God! I did it. You know, I studied from then on. You know, I didn't want to be Roger. All he had to do was tell me a story. And so Jesus, for the people in the crowd that just needed a story, says, let me tell you about a strong man. And they go, okay, I understand now. Very visual-oriented. But the thing that Jesus was doing overall is he was saying to, uh, to them, you are wrong. You are wrong. Stand unified with me. Do not differ. Do not go by your own opinions. We have, I don't know how many hundreds of people in this sanctuary, and we have that many different opinions about God in this sanctuary, and that's okay on the non-essentials. But on the essentials, Jesus has to come to us and say, look, there are some things that you don't waver on. And one of them is who I am. You don't give your own opinion on who I am. If you don't believe who God says I am, you're out to lunch. And that's what he was doing. Now, one more point. Jesus saw in them a spirit of cowardice. Because in all of us, don't we in the world just like to take the easiest route? Whenever there is a conflict, and there was a conflict going on here, Jesus was standing up to them face to face and saying, you are wrong. And the Pharisees were going, you know, they're grinding their teeth and saying, how can we get this guy? So there was a conflict. And he, walked, he looked over the rest of the crowd, and they're all going, just let me out of here. I'm not, not into this. Too busy today. Got other appointments. He saw a spirit of cowardice, a spirit of neutrality. A spirit that said, in these people's minds, if I don't take a stand, then I can't be wrong. I'll let them fight it out, and I'll just kind of have my own thing with God. And he caught it right there. And let me share with you what he said, and then let me share with you partly what he was saying. He said, look, he who is not for me is against me. Now, right there, those of you who are real familiar with the Bible will look in uh, 950, and, and it looks like he's saying just the opposite. He is saying, he who is not against me is for me. You've got to take the two different contexts. If someone in the world is a good teacher, they can add concepts that will add to the Christian when he becomes a Christian. I love my kids being in sports. And part of the reason I love for them to be in sports is because the fundamentals they learn in sports will be of value to them in their Christian walk. They learn teamwork. They learn individual excellence. They learn patience with themselves. 
They learn how to think. I stood out one of the dugouts yesterday and I just heard the coach say over and over, think, you've got to think, you've got to think. That's the same thing I do every Sunday. Think, we've got to think together, you know. That those principles will be wonderful. And I don't care whether the coach is a Christian or not. Yeah, I do. But I mean, from the perspective of the principles you learn in sportsmanship are some of the things, same things that will benefit you later. So when Jesus said he was not against me, is for me, he was talking about the people of the world who teach concepts that will be useful to the kingdom of God later. He's not talking about those people here. He's talking about a bunch of people who are gathered up to him, and it's time to make a decision. And half of them are saying, I don't want to make a decision. Because it seems like if I didn't make a decision, I would be safer. Jesus is saying, that's not possible. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And then he tells another story. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds itself swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man comes worse, becomes worse than the first. Some think that neutrality is a way of maintaining closeness. Nothing could be further from the truth. You don't have to be neutral to be close to your friends. As a matter of fact, the more neutral you are, the less of an intimate friendship you'll be able to have with them because you're not being yourself. You're just being scared. Just being scared. The world pictures God and Satan like this. Now, if you don't hear anything else in this sermon, hear this. The world pictures God and Satan on a continuum. Satan on this side and God is his opposite. That's not how the, 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 the Bible pictures God and Satan. You've, you, the world thinks that as long as I don't do bad stuff, then I'm closer to God. See, on that continuum. If, if I move away from Satan, I'm closer to God. How many funerals have you been to where nobody knew whether or not the guy had ever made a commitment to Christ, but yet, of course he's going to go to heaven because he never did any bad thing as long as I knew him. And in their mind, it is moving in that continuum from Satan over to God. So as long as he didn't do any bad thing, that must, mean, that must mean he's real close to God and he's going to heaven. That is not how the world is. God is not on a continuum with Satan. Satan is a created creature just like all the rest of us. God is up here. Picture an equilateral triangle. God is up here. Satan is down here. We're over here. Now, if you do something to move away from Satan, you'll be farther away from Satan. Will you be closer to God? No. You just move out from Satan. You don't get closer to God. There is one way, one way to get closer to God, and that is to go to him and be with him. He who is not with me, the Greek word is met. He who is not with me is against me. You cannot back your way into God. You have to go front ways, and you have to mean it. It's just that simple. And so being neutral doesn't bring you close. Being not bad doesn't make you good. Doing not bad things doesn't make you holy. There's only one thing that makes you holy, and that's being close to God. And being neutral, gee, 
is not what the world needs. We've got this thing about being open. You know, as long as I'm neutral, then I won't be closed-minded. Bar culture is big on this closed-minded thing. Can't be closed-minded. And so what we've said is, well, I'll just remain neutral. We have this wonderful thing in our public schools called values clarification. What do you think was... What do you think he should have done? I think he should have gouged their eyes out. Well, that's good, Billy. What do you think they should have? I mean, because if a kid's got a value, you can't say, no, that's wrong. And I, you know, I'm not touching the system. What I'm saying is it doesn't work for the church. And that's not what the church is here for. Believe me, the church needs to stand on its values. Being open is not, is not the same as being empty. Being empty means you don't have an opinion. You don't know what's right. And it's a horrible thing to watch an empty person try to be a leader. And it's a just... It's it's I got a letter this week. Let me tell you about this letter I got. Oh, it's driving me crazy. It was a copy of a person's sermon. A person happens to be in a mainline denomination, and they were preaching a sermon on singles and sex. That's okay. And so at the end of this sermon... The guy sums up like this. So there are three options for a single and his sexuality. One option is that the single is stays celibate. The other option is that there is a limited expression of his sexuality or her sexuality. And a third is that the single has a full, fully expressed sexual life. Now here, he's going to form an opinion. And so the next sentence, this will get you. The next sentence is, and this is his big conviction, I have personal reservations about this third option. And then he goes on. And I'm thinking to myself, I want to go up there and cast out the spirit of wimpiness on this guy. <laughs> Do you think the world needs to come and hear about your personal reservations? Can't you just see somebody really in the heat of the moment going, well, I'm sorry, my pastor has personal reservations about this. We can't do this. I mean, that's real strong, isn't it? Golly, your pastor has personal Well, golly, well, let's just give up then. You know? You think that's going to stop anything? You think that's going to... Listen. Somebody needs to say it's sin. And sin destroys and it's not a matter of whether or not God loves you or will ever leave you. That's not the case. The case is whether you will harm yourself and the relationship you're trying to build. God says it will harm the relationship. And God is true. Don't. The person afterwards can make up their mind whether they're going to or not. But it doesn't mean you've been closed. It just means you haven't been empty. It means you had something to offer them. If your kids come up to you and they say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. The first thing that runs through your mind as a parent is what? Well, I can't, no, I can't, gee, I want them to keep talking. I've got to keep the lines of communication open, so on and so forth. And so therefore, I'll just say, well, gee, Billy, that's a real serious thing. I hope you really think that through. You think that's what Billy wants? Billy wants to hear what you think. If you had a kid who came up and said, with a knife in his hand, say, I'm going to just plunge this in my neck. I'm going to commit suicide. Would you look at them and say, gee, Billy, that's a real serious thing. I hope you really think that through before you do that. <laughs> Would you not die for that knife and say, quit it? Why do you think he came to you in the first place? Why? 
do you have to wait till it gets to that point? Kids want to hear what you think. They won't always obey what you think, but they want to hear what you think. Don't wimp out on your kids. The spirit of openness is not the same thing as the spirit of emptiness. I can remember before I was a Christian, going back to my college dormitory, rip-roaring drunk. And my roommate was a Christian, and I can remember him laying on that top bunk. And I can remember me standing in front of him going, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? Do you think that I wanted him to say, well, gee, Hunter, you know, you're an adult. You've got to figure these things out for yourself and so on and so forth. I knew he was a Christian. Do you think that's what I want? I didn't want that. I wanted what he gave me. I wanted him to look in my face and say, yes, it's sin. It makes you look like a sap. God hates it. You're ruining your life. Quit it. Did that repel me from him? No, that drew me to him. You know why? Because he had something I didn't have and I wanted it. He'd go in and hold my head while I threw up. He wasn't closed. He was open. He loved me. But he knew what was right and he knew what was wrong and he stuck with it. You can't be neutral. And I know some of you have just been fooling around, not wanting to offend anybody. But the more neutral you are, the more offensive you are to everybody. A kid doesn't want to see a parent who doesn't know enough to advise them strongly. A friend doesn't want to come to a friend that doesn't know any more than they do. When you need help, when you need advice, you need somebody strong. You need somebody strong. You need the strong Son of God. And that's what they need in you. Now I'm going to quit. But I don't want you to. I want to say a prayer this morning. And if you've been riding in your life on the fence, I want you to get off. Go one way or the other. One way or the other. So you know what you're dealing with. As I pray this prayer, those of you who are ready to stand with Christ, I never do this. You know, this is awful lot like the Baptists. I'm kind of Baptist. When you get right down to it. When it comes to sin, I'm real Baptist. Those of you who are ready to stand with Christ while I'm praying this prayer, I want you to stand up to show him that you are ready to stand with him. And that you're not going to be tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine, but you are ready to walk with him from now on. Pray with me. Lord, as these people stand, to share their lives with you, to show you and show themselves that they're not going to be neutral, that you're going to mean something to them, that you're going to make a difference in their lives, not for their lives only, but for all who would come to them, to depend upon them, to look up to them. As we stand to be with you, <clears throat> we pray that you will give us your strength, we pray that you will make us more loving than we've ever been, more understanding than we've ever been, but stronger than we've ever been as to what is right and what is wrong, what builds up and what destroys. 
And let us love people no matter what, but never let, never let us hesitate to speak when something is sin. And don't let us call it by its clinical terms. Let us call it sin. Something that separates from you. We love you. And we thank you for not being a God who resembles whatever our mood is, but being the God who's in charge of the universe. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your scriptures, please? <clears throat> Turn to the 11th chapter of Luke. If you have them with you, if you don't, we will read it to you. Starting with the 14th verse, we are continuing a series on reading the red, the words of Jesus. <clears throat> and he was casting out a demon, and it was dumb. And it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this first thing. It's, it's strange, I know, for those of you who are new here, and maybe you have not, maybe this is your first trip to church in a long time, and <clears throat> it is strange to speak in terms of casting out demons. And maybe some of you wonder whether there are such things as demons. I'm convinced in my own heart that there are. And there are two simple tests, you know, uh, I mean, two simple things to know about demons. Both of them are in this, this simple sentence. First of all, <clears throat> you can identify the nature and name of a demon. The name is the nature in the, in the New Testament by the effect it has. The spirit was dumb, the Bible says, because it would not let the man speak. And so... <clears throat> the way people identify demons are simply is simply to see what effect that demon has. Secondly, though, demons are not the only thing that are wrong with people in the world. And when you have a situation where you don't know what's wrong, if you pray in the power of the Lord to cast out that demon and nothing happens, then you know it's not a demonic uh, inhabitation. Possession is something else. I'll explain the difference in one of these sermons. <clears throat> Demon possession is very rare. Inhabitation is not. When Becky and I moved into our house, there was something about one room that something in our spirit said, whoa. And I can't really, some of you may have experienced this before, I don't know, but there was, you know, we'd go into the room and there were different smells. There were, there were different sounds periodically. There were, I mean, there was just an alien presence. We did not know much about the house when we bought it. We knew that one of the former inhabitants came from Jamaica, and you know we knew that there were a lot of voodoo stuff goes on down there. Well, anyhow, we didn't jump to the conclusion that it was demon inhabitation. <clears throat> you know, there's just weird stuff that happens all the time. I mean, old houses and so on and so forth. But there came a point at which our spirit said, someone else is living in this house. <laughs> and I can remember one evening, and this had gone on for you know, quite a little while. And of course, when we first went in there, we dedicated the Lord to the house and or dedicated the house to the Lord and said, Lord, make it good for ministry. And so we did all of that. <clears throat> um, but I can remember one night laying in this particular room and just feeling that alien presence. And I can remember speaking and saying, Jesus Christ is the Lord of this house. And it's in his name and by the power of the Spirit 
but I tell you to get out. You know what happened? Nothing. Ever again. <laughs> you can tell whether or not it's demon inhabitation by the effect. Now, I worked for, year, for a year when I was doing my doctoral work in pastoral counseling. I worked for a year as a chaplain at Central State uh, Mental Hospital in, Indiana, in Indianapolis. And out of the hundreds of people I prayed with, and I prayed for spiritual exorcism, only two really responded markedly to that prayer because their problems weren't basically spiritual inhabitation. They were emotional. They were psychological. They were social. They had many problems. There was an intricacy. And so praying that the spirit of whatever would get out of them didn't do anything because that was not the problem. So simply, Jesus is saying, and the Bible is saying, that when you pray an exorcism in the power of Christ, if it's cured, that's what was wrong. It's just that simple. Okay, let's go on. But some of them said, he casts out demons by, by Beelzebul, or the ruler of demons. And others, to test him, were demanding a sign from him. Okay, now there's two groups. First of all, one is so demented, so worldly-natured that they can't see something spiritual happening when it happens, and they assign it to the other side. This is real close to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, not being able to recognize, distinguish good from evil, and therefore you end up supporting evil, or you end up killing good because you're just that mixed up in your mind. These are the people to whom Jesus will give the following reply. The second group we'll talk about next week. The sign seekers, all right? The ones that, <clears throat> pardon me, um, just see Jesus as a ticket to easy spirituality. But these are the ones that he wants to, he wants to contact today, or he's, these are the ones he wants to speak to. Colossians 1.21 says, They were so hostile in their mind to the things of the Spirit. And that's how the world is. The world hates the things of God, Period hates the things of God. They are repulsed by the things of God. And so they assign them to the things that they don't like. When they hear a word of God that convicts their hearts, oops, he's condemning me. I don't like that. And they run. John 3.16 says they hid because of their deeds. They hid in the darkness. They would not come to the light because their deeds were evil. See? So this is the hostile worldly mind. Now, Jesus starts to answer them. He knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, Jesus is going to present four arguments to four different mentalities in this crowd. All right? All of us have something else that teaches us or reaches us. We're all wired a little bit differently. <clears throat> These are four basic arguments that will speak to the four mentalities that he sees in this crowd. First of all, reductio ad absurdum. He takes their point and re-says it to them in a way that makes their point absolutely appear absurd because it is. <clears throat> People who are driven by analysis cannot stand inconsistency. And this is who he's talking about. He's talking, let's use your reason. To the people in, in, the, in the world <clears throat> who are convinced by reason, who are convinced by their own analytical thinking, when you get down to the arguments for the existence of God, the teleological argument, 
the, one, the design argument is really a reductio ad absurdum. It says, point blank, let's say, you know, let's, let's, it, it, it lays out this scenario. It says, pretend you're walking in a desert. This is, uh, by the way, this is for people who believe that pure evolution brought us to be like we were. God had nothing to do with no design, no maker, no direction, just pure successive mutation eventually yielded human beings. The teleological argument just simply shows that for what it is. It says, let's say we're taking a walk in the desert and we see a watch laying on the ground. Now you have two choices. When you ask yourself, how did that watch get there? You have basically two choices. You can say, well, I know how the watch got here. Over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, the sand got together and molded itself together and shaped itself into a little silver shining plate. And then a hundred thousand more years came and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And out of the wind and the rain, these little gears rose up and they kind of tumbled over and because there were so many millions of years involved, they just kind of found themselves and laid themselves in this little bowl of silver. And then, of course, out of millions and millions and millions more years, there was a little spring a little other, another, that kind of wound, and, and in its way, it turned so many somersaults, it got, it got uh, wound up and it landed in this little bowl along with these little gears who just happened because there were so many millions of years to mesh together. And then out of millions and millions and millions of more years, there was a formation of another steel plate that just sprang up and found its way in the middle of the desert to this little silver ball and fell on top of it, which just happened to have a stem that had gotten formed and came up through the plate. And then out of millions and millions and millions and millions more years, because there was so much time, <clears throat> somehow the elements came together and formed white paint. And the white paint rained on this platter. And then, because there was so much time, the elements formed black paint. And the black paint rained on the platter, but only in the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And it arranged itself in that order. Because there was so much time, it had to come together. I mean, something had to be made. I mean, there were probably millions of more watches, but this is the only one that really stood the test. And then, because there were millions and millions more years, there were two little stems that, found, that blew themselves on top of this thing and got attached to the stem and just started pointing, one long and one short, started pointing to these numbers and then out of millions and millions and millions more years, there was a thing that called, there was just a clear substance that formed out of all the elements and found its way toward this and landed on top of it and sealed itself and then out of millions and millions more years because of the wind and everything, it wound itself up and that's how we got to watch. Or you could say, gee, there's a watch. Somebody must have made this watch. Now, the first argument is reducing evolution to the absurd. If you are really reasonable, if you are really logical, if you are really analytical, can you really believe that we got here? Because how much more complicated, how much more synchronized, 
How much more coordinated is just the human eye than a watch? Now, do you really expect me, who is a reasonable human being, to believe that no matter how many billions of years of successive mutation you have, we just happen to get here? See, that's reductio ad absurdum. It's an absurd idea. Nobody who really believes in reason can believe that. Well, that's what Jesus did here. He says, now, wait a minute, guys. You assign what I'm doing to Satan. Let me get this straight now. And he repeats it to him. Satan is going to take over this world by dividing against himself and casting himself out. Is that right? And they can see the illogic of their own conclusion. Oh, this thing. Oh. Now, while they're still reeling, he goes to the second group of people who are not analytical thinkers, but who think in terms of relationships. Now, many of us are influenced not by the rationale of an argument, but by who else believes in it. Who else believes in it? And so the second group he addresses, he says, if by Beelzebul, and by the way, <coughs> that comes <coughs> from the Old Testament, it means basically Lord of the Flies. Beel comes from Baal, which means Lord. Beelzebul by this time not only meant Lord of the Flies, but Lord of the Dunghill. If by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Now watch what he's doing. He is connecting their refusal of him to their refusal of somebody they love. And he's saying, <clears throat> if I'm crazy, then your kids are crazy. One time in a college dormitory, I saw this take place. There was a person who had just given his life to Christ, and there was another person who was confronting him on that. He said, that is really stupid. I can't believe you fell for that. That's just brainwashing stuff. I can't believe you're doing this. Now, the person who had just given his life to Christ knew this other person well enough and knew his family, and the other person happened to have a very godly and saintly mother who I'm sure was praying for this individual all these years, just hadn't taken effect yet. And so the guy just looked at him and very calmly said, so what you're saying is that you're nuts to be a Christian. The guy said, yes. And so he says, so what you're saying is that your mother is crazy. This guy, you should have seen his face. I mean, it was like somebody short-circuited him. He, at first he said, is this guy calling my mother crazy? And he said, and then that didn't work. He says, no, I'm calling my mother crazy. And while, his, while he was reeling on this thing, and he said, and let me get this straight. You would rather have the character you have, because this guy was acting like a reprobate every other day. You would rather have your character and your confusion about life than you would have your mother's character and her integrity. Is that right? And this guy's really like this, and so on and so forth. And then he delivered the piece de resistance. He said, <clears throat> look, I, I stand with your mother on this thing. I don't know where you are. And, the guy, and the, guy, the guy just got so confused, he said, shut up, and he walked away, you know, totally confused. Anytime somebody makes fun of your Christianity you better know that God has probably given them a witness in their life. And if you know their lives well enough, you can say, so does that mean so-and-so? Does that mean your, your pastor who you saw sacrifice his life? Does that mean your brother who you know is a wonderful person? 
And you would like to be like, does that mean they're crazy too? That's what Jesus did. He said, at least your sons are out there casting out demons. You're standing here with theological arguments. They're going to be your judges. If I'm crazy, they're crazy, and they stand in judgment of you. Thirdly, <clears throat> Jesus said, this is the third, to the third kind of argument, for the people who neither think mainly analytically or mainly in conjunction with people they admire and believe what people they admire believe. To the third, he says, these are people from Missouri. You know, show me, show me. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's just saying, you, you seeing it happen? How can you not believe it? You're seeing the evidence in front of you. How can you not believe it? If you see evidence, you have got to give some weight to what I'm saying here. I'm casting out the demons, aren't I? This guy hasn't been able to speak for years. He can speak now, can he? How can you refuse what I'm saying? Bottom line, that is one of the strongest, the strongest arguments you will ever give for God. Somebody sent me a, um, a poster this week. It had a, a, something from St. Francis of Assisi on it. And the, and the phrase was this, Preach God, but use words only when necessary. Or no, it's preach Jesus, but use words only when necessary. In other words, let the evidence of Jesus be so strong in your life, you don't have to talk, except in real extreme cases. When people see God in your life, they have got to believe. They can't deny that power. I can remember one time in seminary, and I didn't go to a seminary I especially cherish. It was, it was liberal because when I went out, I was liberal. So there were believers and non-believers alike. A lot of people avoiding the Vietnam War, frankly. But there was a small group of real, real faithful believers. Real faithful believers. And at the center of those people was a little jolly fellow called John Kowalczyk. He was a Czech. He little, and he loved God. And he loved his family. And he loved his churches. He had these two little country churches, and he'd come back. He'd serve them on the weekends, and he'd come back to school and, during the weekdays. And he would just tell us stories about these charming people. I mean, some of them were absolutely hilarious, you know. And we'd all sit around John because John loved God. And you could not help but be around John and be changed. I mean, that's just how. And he wasn't a real intellectual sort of guy. He was just a regular guy that loved God. Well, there was one person in there who was an intellectual giant. I mean, this guy was brilliant, brilliant. And we were all, during the, during the classes, the off hours, we'd go down to the cafeteria and talk. You know, we just talk. And so we were all surrounded at a table, and this one guy came up one day, and John was telling the stories about his, you know, thing. We were all laughing hilariously, and we loved John. And got a little nervous when this guy came up, because this guy was always so angry. He was mad at everything. And John made a statement about God. Any statement about God is a piece of theology. I mean, that's just it. This guy lit into John. I mean lit into him. He said, I am so sick of you ignoramuses who don't know anything about theology. You're going around getting D's in class, just barely passing, making statements about God. And he rose up while he was furious. 
and started quoting theologians and started coming against John. And he, and he finally came after, after a very lengthy railing against John and said, what in the world gives you any spiritual authority when you don't know anything? And John just sat there looking at him. He wouldn't say anything. I knew John well enough to know John was sitting there praying for him. I mean, that's what John was doing. But someone else, after what seemed like hours, stood up and said, Dan, the guy's name was Dan, when we see in your life the love and the understanding, when we see in your life the good being done in the world that we see in John's, we'll listen to you. You know what he said? Nothing. He walked away totally defeated. Because as brilliant as he was, he was empty and he knew it. He was miserable and he knew it. What convinced everybody about what John was saying? His life. His life. When, some, when I'm over at the gym... Every once in a while, people will come in and they just want, you know, there's just people who just love to tell you what to do. And sometimes these guys totally out of shape will come in and instruct you on how to lift weights, you know. And you're looking at this belly that's hanging out to here, you know, you get the little watermelon slice between the shirt and the shorts, you know. And he goes down and he says, no, you lift weights like this, no, you lift weights like this, no. And everybody just... You know, the polite ones will listen to him and then just go on with what they were doing because they've got this, they don't see any evidence that he knows what he's talking about. He could have technically the most correct knowledge in the world. They could probably benefit from what he's saying, but they don't listen because there's no evidence. There's one guy over there, if he comes in and speaks a word about what to do lifting weights, it's like E.F. Hutton. You know why? Because he's got a body that will not quit. Why do we listen? Because we see the evidence. We see the evidence. It's that important. People say that it seems like in this world that it is reasonable to, to believe in... Wait a minute. Okay. I'm sorry, I just had an intervening thought there <clears throat> for later in the message. People, it seems like it is reasonable to listen to words and to make logical conclusions. But unless it works, it is not truth. You understand? Unless it works, it is not truth. And I have yet to see the world work. Are any of you convinced that if you go the world's way, you'll be happier? You'll be more fulfilled? Are any of you convinced that if I just let my kids do whatever the culture tells them to do, they're going to grow up healthy? Any? You know better than that. You know better than that. I have yet to see in 18 years of ministry anybody come in both any marriage come in both of whom are putting God's will ahead of their own they get a divorce 
It has never happened. One person, at least, has to sign out and say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I say. I have never seen two people who were putting God's will ahead of their own fail in their marriage. I have never seen in 18 years of ministry a young person come in who was trying to follow God and mess up his life. Never seen it. Now, there are some times when they drop out and they say, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm going to do this because I feel like doing this. And they mess up their lives. But I have never seen anybody who was following Christ the best they knew how that was hurting themselves. Never seen it. Can you say that about the world? The world doesn't work like that, does it? I know it seems like the world is progressing. I know it seems like when the world reasons without God about what to do, that sometimes it makes sense. But take a look at the good things that have lasted in this world. Have they been worldly or have they been spiritual? You see Baptist hospitals, you see Methodist hospitals, you see Presbyterian hospitals, you see Catholic hospitals, you see Jewish hospitals. Have you ever seen an atheist hospital in any city? You've never seen it. Never seen it. The leading learning institutions of this country, now backsliding, but started as spiritual adventures to equip people for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Harvard started like that. Yale started like that. Princeton started like that. And you could go on down the list. It works. You look out in the world and you say, does Christianity work? And if you look at the evidence, you will say, you bet it works. The world is dysfunctional, but it works. Now, Jesus was simply looking at those people in the crowd who were looking for a little, little evidence and say, the guy's well, isn't he? Is the guy well? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's that simple. And there was a third or fourth kind of person, the person who is converted by story. I'm that kind of person. You know, you tell me a story, I'm there. Which, you know, that's how I preach. I preach in stories. You know I'm that kind of person. I can remember going, going to my grandparents' house with a real poor report card one time. Now, I had had my mother give me a lecture on poor report cards. When you grow up, you won't even be able to support your family. Yeah, I know. You're going to, turn, you're going to go to jail. Yeah, I know. And so on and so forth, down the line. You know, I mean, they could give me every reasonable, every reasonable reason why I ought to study. They could tell me, they, they could point to statistics and how much people earned. They could do, they could say, look at this person that you admire. You know, he studies, and, and I, that didn't get me motivated. But I took my report card one time to my grandfather. And Pop, bless his heart, I still remember he had his favorite chair, had a cigar in his mouth he never lit. He looked at that report card. He said, Joey, you know, when I was a little boy, there was a kid in school named Roger. And uh, he was smart, but he never studied. And you know what? The kids made fun of him eventually. And, and what else did he say? He said, uh, kids made fun of him eventually. They called him a dummy, and no one would be his friend eventually. Because... I don't know, you just didn't want to hang around somebody real dumb. And he looked at, he, like, like you rediscovered the report card. He said, oh, well, well, try and do better. Man, 
I knew I was going to turn into Roger if I didn't study. I mean, Roger was me. And so I've been running from Roger all my life. I have not wanted to be Roger. That's all it took was a story. That's all it took. That's exactly what Jesus does. He says, let me tell you a story. And he says, when a strong man, verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own homestead, his possessions are understood, are undisturbed. I'm sorry. Now, the strong man is Satan, right? The strong man is Satan. And please be aware how strong Satan is in this world. I know that we believe that God is so much more powerful than, than Satan, and he is, that Satan is really no force at all. Satan is really a bluffer. Uh, Luther said in German, if I can remember it, Ein Wortling will in fallen. And it means one little word shall knock him down. You know, from, from uh, Mighty Fortress is our God. Remember, that? remember those words? One little word shall knock him down. In comparison with the strength of God, Satan is nothing. But guess what? In comparison with our strength, there's a war going on out there. There's a war going on in here for our lives, for our thought lives, for our kids. There's no messing around, guys. This is war. So don't underemphasize too much the strength that Satan has in this world without calling God in. There's the strong man. And then he says, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. In other words, Satan does not have a chance when I am called in. So there are the four arguments that contrary to popular opinion that Jesus saw that people needed in that crowd, not just their own opinion of who he was, but who he was on the basis of how they could understand. Now, he has one last thing to say to them, and that's this. It's a matter of being unified with him. We will be unified with each other. He gives a real danger, though, in this unification process. The world makes it seem like if we just remain neutral, we can be, A, close to God, or, B, close to people, or, C, open to be at one with the culture. And so, therefore, the way to remain close and remain open is being neutral. Watch what Jesus says about that. He says, He who is not with me is against me. Now, in 950, Jesus said just the opposite. Well, it wasn't the opposite. He said, He who is not against me is for me. Here's two completely different contexts. Both of these make sense in their own context. I have my kids play sports because even though that's not a Christian activity, what they learn in sports will be invaluable to them as a Christian. They learn things like to think. <laughs> I listened to my baseball, uh, my son's baseball coach the other day. He stood in the dugout and he goes, think, think, think. He said, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to know what you're going to do next. You've got to persevere. You can't worry about the score. You've got to go out and, and so on and so forth. And he went down about five qualities of the boy's life that will be invaluable to them. 
when they put that into practice in their Christian life. Now, he's, he's not against Christianity. This, this guy happens to be a Christian. But there have been plenty of coaches that haven't been Christians. But they, they, what they have said will add to these boys' lives as Christians. So that makes sense in that context. But listen, in this context, where, where, where we're talking about the togetherness of Christ, Jesus is saying, if you try to remain neutral, if it's a choice between me and the world and Satan, there is no such thing as neutrality. You have got to make a choice. Now, I'll show you why in a minute. He who, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And there are about ten things in here, by the way, you can learn about demons. I'm not going to go through them all, but they need a place of rest. They can make decisions on their own, so on and so forth. Um, seeking rest. Not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it's, uh, it's, it's swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Now, let me tell you two things. First of all, and if you don't get anything out of this message other than this, get this. The way that the world has pictured that God and Satan is that it says that the, the world believes that they're opposites. And so what we do is we put them on a continuum, okay? Satan over here, God over here. And in the world's mentality, anything you, anytime you don't do something wrong that would pull you towards Satan, it pulls you closer to God. In the world's mentality. How many funerals have you gone to and their basis for assuming that the guy got into heaven is because he didn't do a lot of bad stuff? Right? Say, so, well, he must be with the Lord because he was a good man. And what they have in their mind is this continuum that God is here and Satan is here and he wasn't on Satan's side, so therefore he must be close to the Lord. That's not the scriptural picture. God is not Satan's opposite. God is God. And he's up here. He is the cure. He is not in dynamic tension with Satan. Satan is a created creature like all the rest of us. And so God is up here. Satan's down here. And where are we? Picture an equilateral triangle. We're over here. Now, if you... Do something not bad. <laughs> if you are getting further and further away from Satan, is that bringing you closer to God? That didn't bring you closer to God. You're the same distance from God. God's up here. You're just going out here. You may be getting further away from Satan. You're not getting closer to God. The only way you can get close to God is if you go to God. He who is not with me. The Greek is met. He who has not met me. He who is not with me, who has not made a decision to come to me, is far away from me. I don't care how many bad things you don't do. You're still far from God. Because God is not on an equilateral continuum with Satan. He's way up here. And Jesus was simply saying, you can be scattered if you don't make a decision for God. It's just that simple. Just that simple. And... Not only that, but it seems like if you remain neutral. Well, I want, to, I want to remain, you know, close to my friends and none of them are saved and so on and so forth. And, and I want to be open to them and so therefore I will remain neutral. And when they ask me for value judgments, I'll, give, I'll go into this values clarification stupor that goes like this. Oh, golly, gee, just 
I don't know, that's kind of like in between you and God. I mean, I've got my own personal stuff, but, you know, it's just, you know, how you work that out with God, just, you know, I, I just can't say. I mean, that's your stuff. I don't know your stuff well enough. That's not remaining open. That's remaining empty. There's a difference between being open and being empty. Being open does not preclude having something in there that is solid. Being empty means you have nothing in there. You have nothing in there. It is a fact that people are drawn not to emptiness, but to resolution that loves. When I was in college, I used to get rip-roaring drunk. And I had, a, I had a, a roommate who was a Christian. And I would go back to that room, and I, would, I, I can remember standing in front of that bunk bed. He was on the top bunk, standing in front of that bunk bed like this, going, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? And he could have made two, conver- two replies to me. One, he could have said, well, gee, you know, between you and the Lord, who am I to say? You know, golly, I, I've not walked a mile in your shoes. I don't know your situation. I can't call you. But he never did. He said, of course I think it's wrong. I think it's stupid. I think it's sin. And God hates it because you're messing your life up. Did that close him off to me? Did that make me repulsed by him? No, that drew me to him. Because you know what? He had something I wanted. He had something that didn't flounder around and go by every wind and wave of doctrine. He knew what he thought. He was strong. And I knew he loved me like crazy. Go in and hold my head while I throw up. You know? He loved me. He loved me. People don't confuse openness with emptiness. Please don't do that. When your kids come to you, I know the first thing that goes through your mind, well, I don't want to run them away with my values. They are looking for values. If they were to come to you and say, I think I'm going to commit suicide, what would you say? Don't. If they had something in their hand that they were going to do it with, you'd take it away, wouldn't you? Why wait till then? Why not anything that you know will harm you say, that's going to hurt you. God hates that. That's sin. I got a, gosh, this is driving me crazy. I got a letter this week. I know it's time, and I'm going to quit because other people need to get in here. But let me tell you this. I got a letter this week enclosed with a sermon from a pastor from a mainline denomination. The sermon was written out. It was on sex and the single person. Okay. What did it say? I read the end of the sermon and it said this. So the single person has three options. They can remain single and celibate. They can remain, or they can have, they can remain, um, Um, single and have partial sexual expression or they can remain single and have uh, full sexual expression. And then the next sentence was, I have personal reservations about that third option. I wanted to go up and strangle this guy. Personal reservations? What's that going to do with that person? Can't you just see it? I want you to know that my pastor has personal reservations about this. What we're doing right now, golly, maybe we ought not because he has personal reservations. Good grief. If they don't want to follow that, if they don't want to call sin, sin, if they want to keep on doing it, that's their choice. But it's really stupid for a man of God to say, gee, I have personal reservations about it. 
Who cares about your personal reservations? Is it going to destroy them or isn't it? Is God's word true or isn't it? Sometimes you've got to stand with God, see? Now, stuff with how long a person's here, I don't care about that. God doesn't care about that. But sin is sin, and sin hurts. There's a whole bunch of people out there looking in. <laughs> Maybe we ought to let him in. What do you think? <sighs> let me ask you to do something. I'm going to pray with you right now. And I'm going to do something that I very seldom do, but I feel the need to do. I want you to bow your heads and pray with me. And during this prayer, if you want to take a stand with Jesus Christ, wherever he is, you want to be with him. I want you to stand up during this prayer. And then we will have a closing song and get out of here. Pray with me. God, we want to be united with you. The people who are right now standing, who are in the process of standing up as a witness to you, do not want to be neutral in their lives. They don't want to be empty in their lives. They want to be your children. They want to do your will. They want to be with a strong son of God and son of some namby-pamby religion. Let us be united with Christ so that we can gather people to your kingdom instead of scatter them with our own opinions. Let us love you and be a credit to you and be a credit to all who are seeking you in their need. We pray this in Jesus' name.